This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I'm here for today's interview episode with David Canfield. Hi, Katie. And Chris Murphy. Hello, hello. Chris, you've been on so much lately. It's we, We're so I delighted know. to have I- you. People are going to get sick of me, but they can't keep me away from this mic. Absolutely. <laughs> it's never. Pride Month. They can't. They can't <laughs> you guys have the interviews for today's episode. Um, David, let's start with you and your conversation with Brian Cranston, who is not only a television icon who is part of the Emmy conversation this year, but he's also in Wes Anderson's new movie, Asteroid City. Um, I love the range of what he's got going on lately, and it, it sounds like he does, too. He does. Um, we also got to talk a little bit about Better Call Saul. He is somehow still eligible for an Emmy for playing Walter White. It's got to be one of the longest runs ever uh, in that regard. Um, but yeah, Asteroid City is a really interesting project for him. He was a, one of the main voices in Isle of Dogs, but this was his first live action Wes Anderson movie. Uh, he gets to play a kind of narrator role, which for people who love Wes Anderson movies know that that is uniquely demanding and idiosyncratic kind of part and he kind of nails it uh unsurprisingly and there's a lot of you know mechanics that go into that and and prep and it's unlike anything else that he's done really uh yeah and he's done such a wide range of things also like i mean i kind of got to listen in on your conversation and kind of the joy he takes in stretching himself and in finding uh new things to do It's, it's really nice to see for someone who you know could really just comfortably lean into something easy at this point in his career yeah, he, he seems like he never takes it for granted. And there was a bit of a full circle element to the conversation and to this moment for him because he's quite aware that coming off of Breaking Bad, that's where all of his opportunities have come from. You know, he's won two Tonys, he's been an Oscar nominee, and he's now working with people like Wes Anderson. And so he sees himself on a Wes Anderson set. While also still bringing Walter White back to life in these different incarnations, he also did a Super Bowl commercial that we talked briefly about. Um, and, And there's this feeling of you can draw a line from Breaking Bad to all this stuff that he's gotten to do and uh, hopes to continue to do. Yeah. Uh, Well, let's hear all about it in your conversation with Brian Cranston. Brian Cranston, thanks for joining us. We've got a lot to to get into. Uh, I feel like, as always with you, you're always a busy guy. Well, aren't we all busy, Dave? (laughs) I'd like to think so. I'd like to think so. However, not all of us are just fresh from Cannes, which I believe you are. Yes. Yeah. What what an experience that is. Yeah, especially when you're with a Wes Anderson movie, because I'm always fascinated by, you know, the photo calls you guys get to do with just this... (laughs) 
immense glamour behind you and all of these unbelievable actors just sort of lined up. What, what was the experience like? And every single one of those actors are saying to themselves, I'm going to be glad when this is over and I can get out of this tuxedo <laughs> or this dress and these high heels and just, you know, get into sweats and have a glass of wine. That's what we're, that's what everybody was saying. I, I'm not surprised by that. It does look, uh, it looks pretty intense. It is. There's a lot of pomp and circumstance to it, but I'm glad. I'm glad it brings attention to the cinema and and theatrical um, storytelling that that uh, is coming soon and, and get everybody excited about it. Yeah, let's let's start by talking about Asteroid City a little bit. It's a, it's a beautiful little movie, um, and it's, it's one that, I believe it's the first time you've done a, a live action film with Wes, right? It is. Yes. I did Isle of Dogs with him a few years ago, and that was an animated film. You play a kind of role in his movies that I find particularly fascinating, which is the kind of narrator role. Um, it's it's not like narrator roles in other Wes Anderson, in other movies. Wes Anderson narrators have a lot of action going on behind them. There's a particular tone to it. Uh, I love the one Bob Balaban did, for instance, in Moonrise Kingdom. Uh, yes. How do you how do you figure that kind of role out? It's it's a weird one. It is a weird one. Wes makes an animatic of the entire movie and and voices all the characters, and gives that what he calls a cartoon to the actors on a laptop, and we watch it and we realize, oh, okay, that's the tone he's going for. That's what hmm. he meant in that on that page that was kind of difficult to understand. He's so specific and so pure in his thinking and, and, and individual that you can't predict how he is going to do any one thing. So you just have to be there and, and be ready to experience it and adapt and be flexible. Um, in, in my character in Asteroid City, Actually, the whole thing is about a, it's a movie about a television show that is doing an expose on a theatrical piece. Right. And I play the host of the television show that is doing the introduction. So there's a tremendous amount of expositional information that needs to get out and introductions. I introduce almost every character and, um, and also, you know, try to keep the audience, um, aware of the plot points. And in order to do that, I, I wanted to be like a journalist where you, you are not infusing your, your performance with emotion mm-hmm. um, or inflection. I wanted to kind of be a little deadpan and droll and, and just get out the information, let the audience hear it, and then watch the play unfold. So um, it, it was fun, though. I mean, it was fun and challenging at the same time. Yeah, in each of his films, especially those more recently, there's so much going on. Most of the actors are not necessarily working with each other. Um, and, and you mentioned the nesting doll kind of conceit of this one. How, how did the script and the story strike you overall, even you know beyond your involvement in it? What, what did you connect to in it? You know, Wes has a legacy of his films that he always takes big chances. Mm-hmm. He always does something very unique. It's not something where you see other filmmakers doing. They have their own individuality. So like an actor's experience in the first acting class one has ever taken, 
you just embrace the the trust exercise that goes with it. You give over. You let go. Instead of going into a Wes Anderson movie going, all right, here's what I want to do and what I'm going to do and here's how I'm going to do it, mm-hmm. you just let go of all that preconceived ideas and the way you approach other films and you just fall back and get into the flow of that odd sensibility that he has and just flow with it and be part of the company. And that's what it really is. There are no hierarchy in a Wes Anderson movie. There's no call sheet. There's no, I'm number one on the call sheet. I'm number two. You're number seven. There are no dressing rooms. There are no trailers. Everyone is all together. We live together. We eat together. We recreate together. It's, it's really a great experience from that standpoint that actors have this opportunity to go to what I was calling actor camp. Hmm. <laughs> it's, it's really fun. Yeah, yeah, it, it feels that way when you watch it. Um, it. It's very obvious, I think, watching a movie like this that there is no hierarchy. But I, I am curious, coming in as a, a relative newbie, you know, if if Wes is giving a kind of direction, maybe do you see Jason Schwartzman, you know, laughing at the fact that he's been working with him for twenty years and knows his ticks maybe a little bit? Like, are there kinds of there's a kind of awareness maybe of, of some of the people there who know him pretty well. We know him pretty well, and we're all at the same table every night for dinner. Yeah. So there's Bob Balaban, and there's Jeff Goldblum, and Ed Norton, and uh, Bill Murray, and Jason Schwartzman, and we're all there, and Adrian Brody, and we're 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 all discussing, you know, what you have to do, and and it was it was a relief to have us being able to talk openly over glasses of wine and food that say, yeah, I'm, I'm nervous about this and that and the other, and other people going, me too, yeah, I was too. You know. Something that you wouldn't just open up and say to the press or to the public, mm-hmm. it is very insular to be able to, to wrap your arms around this company and have an experience within this company that, is pretty extraordinary and very unique to filmmaking. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. In in terms of films generally, uh, I saw you had written a really lovely post about your your film, the one and only Ivan, recently. Oh, that yeah, that that is. I think it's off Disney Plus now, or it's soon leaving. In terms of making movies right now, um, and particularly ones that go to streaming. How did you experience that whole news cycle of this movie you made that clearly you, you felt a great deal about um, kind of getting yanked off the service? I, I don't portend to get involved in any of the business end of it. Um, I truly am grateful that Disney made the movie and that we were able to tell that story. And wherever the one and only Ivan winds up, you know, in the ether world that we live in, it may be a challenge for people to find it, but, uh, you know, with some effort, they'll be able to do that. The marriage of business and, and creativity has always been a strange bedfellow. Uh, we, we have a, a symbiotic relationship. We, we both need each other. Mm-hmm. The business end needs the creative content the creators need the the finances for the support 
and and the infrastructure that the business such as Disney and Disney Channel or Disney Plus has to be able to go. So, for example, the one and only Ivan was supposed to be a theatrical release. Right. And all of a sudden, through the act of God, and in this case, uh, COVID and the, the horrible experience that the world went through, it shut everything down. Nobody was going anywhere. And Disney pivoted and put it on Disney Plus, where it found an audience. And it was like, how, how fortunate to be able to say, oh, it would have been horrible if it just you know, lingered on a shelf somewhere and, and didn't find distribution. And, and you know, so it, it, the timing of it seemed to, to work out well. And um, I, I, think it, I think it worked fine in the small screen, too. I, I don't think that the one and only Ivan was a must-see on the, on the large screen. I think it worked really well on Disney Channel. Yeah, and you had a, another film hit streaming this past season, um, Jerry and Marge Go Large, Paramount yeah. Plus. Yeah. So, yeah, you've, you've, been, <laughs> you've been in the streaming game a little bit. I, uh, uh, that's another one that they said, well, we think this is going to go on Paramount Plus. And I said, okay. Um, you know, I, again, there are other people whose job it is to determine where something is best placed. That's not my job. My job is just to focus on doing the best one I can in creating and telling these stories. And then you, you have to release it. You have to let that go. And so that's, that's what we did. And I think it, uh, it played really well on Paramount Plus. I think it was, I think that too was a great home for it. And, and very grateful that um, we were able to find a home for that. The Run for Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitz. Um, we should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah, that. Yeah, we support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Well, let me ask you about the intersection of, of business and creativity with a project like Your Honor, because I think it's an interesting question with that show, because I believe it was conceived as a limited series. It was a big hit for Showtime. What was the balance for you between the network probably wanting it to come back because it was successful and, and you wanting to do it again? Um, when we were initially discussing this uh, with Peter Moffat, the creator showrunner of of the show, he pitched it as a two-season concept. And while that made sense, I was really fixated on the structure that Big Little Lies had, which was that one season, it was intended to be one season. Yep. 
beginning, middle, and end. And I, I that's what it excited me. And so I only signed up for one year. And we did the one year, first season of, of Your Honor. And I was happy with it. It ended in a tragic way, but appropriately. Mm-hmm. And I thought that it came to a, a, a very satisfying conclusion for the story we were telling. And then Peter came to me and said, not that you're going to or have to, but what would you say, where is Michael Desiato? And I said, I think he either took his own life because he lost everything in the world, or he's in prison for the crimes he committed. So he pitched an idea, he went away and then came back and pitched an idea where my character would be in prison. And I made some adjustments to that, which he liked. So the two of us were on our way to create this third season. And and we pitched Showtime with the idea that here's a, here's a story of redemption of a person working through grief and despair. And if you're willing to do that, I'm very interested in telling that story. So that's where it went. And Showtime, to their credit, they said, let's do it. We, we love that. And uh, I said, you know, it, I promise you it won't be maudlin. I promise you it won't bring the audience down. We're still going to have plenty of action and activity around Michael. But Michael himself is not going to be the catalyst to a lot of things going on because of his honest place in circumstantial um, life that he's had. And so they said, let's do it. And um, we were all very pleased with that as well. So here you have an example of a home with, with Showtime or with Paramount Plus or with Disney Channel, Disney Plus. Um, I'm just grateful that we have these platforms now that everybody around the world is accustomed to and knows that's where they can go to find really well-told stories. Yeah. One way in which uh, Your Honor reminded me of a past show you did, a little one called Breaking Bad, is that in both you get to chart this pretty extreme, extraordinary physical transformation and, and show how that reflects the character's transformation. What do you gain from those kinds of evolutions in a character, and particularly the kind that television uniquely affords? Well, I think what you mean by what television affords is that is the expense of time. Yes. As, yeah. Well, I, I've always said that Breaking Bad would have made a terrible movie mm-hmm. because you would have had to truncate the stories and skip over a lot of development the, the slow descent of this man into where he was, and you'd have to get to that end. And I, it's the journey that counts. And I, and I think that's why television now, whether it's Breaking Bad or Your Honor or Succession, whatever the case may be, we invest. Audiences invest time and energy. And once a week, which I like better than binging, the once a week allows the audience to delay their gratification, to mm-hmm. have show some restraint. And also it develops, you know, interest in, in, in that conversation about, oh, can you, can you imagine what's going to happen next week? And it, it really gets people excited. Um, so I, I like that format. But I always, I've always thought that the, the story should dictate the medium. 
you know, there are sketches on Saturday Night Live that are three to five minutes long, and they're perfect for that. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's like a, a nugget. It's great, and they've been doing it for, you know, decades. Um, where that might go wrong sometimes is thinking that you can take that three to five minute and now let's make a feature film out of this. And it's like, mm, it wasn't designed for that. You, you have to be very careful about how that becomes the next yes. iteration. So the story should dictate that. And whether it's a one season or two season or, or a 90 minute or two hour movie, it depends on, on the story itself. Yeah. At the same time, you're, you're an actor who a lot of your characters have lived pretty long lives, even some of your stage characters like, you know, Network or All the Way. You've played those characters in multiple iterations. Do you find it hard sometimes to say goodbye to them? I mean, you just did a Super Bowl commercial to keep to keep Walter White alive. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the Popcorners commercial that that Aaron Paul and I did. At first, it's like, we want you to do that. And I go, well, I don't know. What is it you want? And and they, they pitched us the idea. And Aaron and I talked about it. And we said, when we were doing the show for those seven years, there weren't a lot of times that we were actually having fun and laughing <laughs> during the process. Yes. Um, it was a very serious show. And so at a very draining and demanding show. I said, would it be fun if we can get everybody back together and just have fun and laugh and goof around? And and that's why we wanted to do it. Um, Vince Gilligan directed it. We had the camera people and the and wardrobe and makeup. They were all from Breaking Bad. And so we we were able to reunite a lot of people into into doing so a lot of it is experiential you know like we were talking about Wes Anderson I want the I want to have a good experience as well as a good outcome from the story story you tell you know the the all the way that I did on Broadway about Lyndon Johnson in the in the year after uh, President Kennedy was was assassinated HBO came to us and they they said we'd we'd love to do this and and um, the package came together with um, Jay Roach directing, and um, I couldn't pass that up. I worked with Jay Roach also on Trumbo, and so I, I love the guy and, and love to spend time with him, and he's so creative. And so it, it's those kind of combinations that you look for uh, when, you're, when you're talking about doing, doing a, a performance. Um, Network was the same way. Ivo Van Hove is, a, is an auteur himself a theatrical director and i just gave in he's a lot like wes anderson in that you you let go and just go with the flow of what evo wants to go and and you allow yourself to to flow with it yeah do you find as you continue on in in these various with these various characters new layers like let's take um better call Saul for an example uh, for which you are remarkably still Emmy eligible to playing Walter White. That's quite a long run in that <laughs> regard. Crazy. Um, but, you know, you, you did get some, it's an interesting little uh, storyline you got there. What is it like to step back into those shoes in, again, a dramatic context as part of this expansive show? You know, when we left Breaking Bad, which was 10 years ago, 10 mm-hmm. years ago, we stopped shooting Breaking Bad. 
And for all intents and purposes, I thought, well, that's that was a great run. That's the end of that. Move on. And then there was, um, well, it's not quite done. There was El Camino to do. Oh, yeah, that'd be great. Tell the story. What happened to Jesse Pinkman? Okay. And then Better Call Saul kicked in. And it was like, oh, well, okay, we might come back and do it. You know, okay. And then there's the commercial. And so I'm in the never say never category on, on that sort of thing. Um, do I think Walter White will ever come back? I, I, I don't think so, but I could be wrong. Um, <laughs> and it was, uh, you know, it was like a, going to a high school reunion when you go back and do these things, familiar faces, familiar costume. You feel like you're back in high school. We, we, we felt like, oh my God, here we are again. We're, we're doing this is, is just, it's kind of amazing. And it was also a touchstone to an incredibly important period of of my life mm-hmm. and and one that I celebrate and recognize as a it, it was a career changing experience and um in so doing it changed my life as well yeah in some ways you can draw a line right from that to Wes Anderson in some ways yeah um well in this in the spirit of not quite saying goodbye. Uh, I have heard that with your honor, you have not felt ready to say goodbye quite yet or put the, put the pin in it. You could see yourself continuing to do it. Uh, if there is a good reason to do it, uh, to be perfectly honest, Dave, I, I don't, I don't need a job. I don't want a job. I love to work, but it, it has to be a good reason. If a, a good story was connected like this, the story of the second season of, of your honor really got to me because it was like, okay, yes. If a man loses his soul, compromises his ethics and ends up losing everything anyway, what happens to that man? Where does he go? Where's redemption is forgiveness. Part of that equation. Um, Can he forgive himself? What does happen to a person who experienced grave despair? Um, so that that was something worth exploring. If there was something impactful like that again, that was proposed for season three of Your Honor, I would very much entertain it. Um, but I just don't know what that is yet. Yeah. Coming off of uh, a film like Asteroid City... Uh, and working with a director like Wes Anderson, do you have another director who's pretty high on your list that you'd love to work with? Oh, there's several. And I hasten to to mention any names because then I know I'm going to forget someone of, of great importance. Um, but yes, what what happens if you're fortunate enough to to get active work? You are subjected to better and better pool of of talented people. And um, I, I want to be open and ready and available for that to happen. So it's been a great ride so far. And, um, you know, I love going back and forth between film or television or theater. And um, I just keep in the mix that way. I want to surprise my fans and my audience. And, and in so doing, I surprise myself often about some of the things that I've selected. Is there anything recently that felt particularly surprising to you? 
Yeah, well, there's something coming up that is uh, is surprising. It's something I've never done before. Okay. Uh, it's, <laughs> and it scares me. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's in the works. It's going to happen in, a, in the year 2025. And so there's a lot of preparation in order to get to that point. And, you know, that's part of it is to not be able to just stay in a comfort zone but to, in my case, I don't have to force myself into a position of discomfort. It, I, I'm kind of attracted to it like an like a open flame. But I want to do it smartly. And, and you know, I do have pride in my work. I, I want to, I, when I do something that is not normally in my wheelhouse, I want to have the time to prepare myself to do it very well. Uh, otherwise, I would be disappointed in myself. I'm excited for this mystery 2025. Mystery 2025. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, we don't know when we're going to announce that. That uh, maybe even later this year. Yeah. Uh, well, I wish you all the best of luck with whatever it may be. And thank you very much for your time. I'll keep Brian that Branson. mystery, Dave. <laughs> Please <laughs> do. We like a little mystery on this. We like a little so. mystery. Okay, Chris, you got to talk to Molly Shannon, who is also a TV industry veteran who has also done a million different things and also is kind of challenging herself as part of a um, kind of a, a very new kind of comedy compared to maybe SNL of the 90s on the other two. Yeah, we actually talked about the span of her career from, you know, her breakout turn on SNL and, you know, Mary Catherine Gallagher and Terry Rialto and Sally O'Malley and all those amazing characters. And now her newest iconic character, Pat Dubeck, on the other two um, in this really hilarious, really absurd season three, talking a lot with Molly about specifically episode seven, where Pat Dubeck is trapped in a fake Applebee's, um, (laughs) (laughs) which sounds crazy, but really makes sense um, once you see the episode. And we really spent a lot of time talking about how Molly Shannon is so great at sort of balancing absurd comic like heightened situations and grounding it in reality and bringing an emotional depth to things that are as silly and as crazy as being trapped in an Applebee's. Um, and she was an absolute delight and gave some secrets about how she finds the rhythm of comedic beats and how she, you know, is so great at setting up punchlines um, and sort of the, the music of comedy, if you will. David, I know you're a fan of the other two as well, and it feels like it's flown under the radar, but maybe is getting a little bit more recognition now. Maybe Is Molly Shannon finally getting some of her due for what she's been doing on the show? I think so. Uh, I rewatched the entire series <laughs> a couple weeks ago after <laughs> I ran out of season three screeners. <laughs> and one of the genius strokes of this show was the way it gave her a bigger part. You know, in the first season, she's very much like the mom to this sudden child superstar, but then she becomes a superstar midway into the show's run and, and starts to loom larger in the in the main character's lives in a way that is hilarious and, and poignant, as Chris was saying, and she just completely nails it. So I can't wait to listen. Yeah, Chris, let's hear your conversation with Molly Shannon. Your work on this season of The Other Two is Absolutely incredible. Oh, my God. Thank you. So I got to know, 
you know, as a uber fan of the show, in season two, Pat Dubeck, who you play wonderfully, she sort of becomes Ellen. And then in season three, she kind of transforms into Oprah, like the most famous woman on the planet. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Were you prepared for that arc? Can you tell me about like that evolution from, you know, from just a mom to then to a talk show host to then owner of a network? I wasn't prepared. I have total trust in Chris Kelly and Sarah Schneider, our brilliant showrunners. I don't even ask them. I just wait till the scripts come out and then I'm just excited and surprised. They're, they are just so talented. So I've never played a character like that before ever in my life. Like somebody that rich with beautiful <laughs> clothes and a giant house and a screening room. And yeah. so it was really fun. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it was just a, a total surprise to see that turn because she starts off as like a mother moving to New York City from Ohio, a very almost like a Kate Gosselin, you know. Yes. Um, very Midwestern mom type, you know, bringing her son to New York City to make it big. And then she really, she's really changed and grown. And um, so it was, it was so fun to play. Yeah. I mean, she really starts off, you know, a single mom who loves her kids, who works two jobs and never stops to quote the Reba song. I mean, you have so many jobs by, (laughs) by season three. And I have to wonder, I mean, because you've been in the industry for so long and you've, you know, you've been famous for many years now. Is fame really a prison? Like, is it really as much of a prison as <laughs> as That's the show? That's so funny. No, not at all. I'm I'm a very outgoing person. And so I really love to talk to people and you meet so many strangers. People come up to you. So no, I I love it. I think I guess if you were like a very introverted person and you got really famous, that probably would be hard, but I'm extroverted, so I get energy from that. Um but I think when I um having kids was hard like when they were little cuz I would go about my normal day as a mom and you're kind of like double duty like hi to the fans and taking care of your kids. So that part's a little harder. Yeah. But um but no, it doesn't feel like a prison at all but sometimes people will go like hi molly like they know me and i'm like do i know you and all that kind of friendly and then they're like no you don't know me so that part's a little weird i remember when i first started saturday night live they would kind of recognize me and then adam sandler told me because he had been on the show before me and we had gone to nyu drama school together he goes just wait. He goes, soon they're going to know your name. They'll, they'll call out Molly. And I couldn't believe it. And then that did happen, of course. But no, yeah. it, it's really not, not a problem. Wow. I, I mean, that's because I was worried. I mean, Pat this season, she just wants to go on a walk. She just wants to, you know, eat dinner at Applebee's, right? It's such a simple, such a <laughs> simple request that for, you know, someone of that magnitude. And I think what the other two does so well, you know, as somebody, you know, in the industry or who writes about the industry is it gets at how the sort of the intricacies and nuances of the entertainment industry and how these simple tasks like going for a walk, going to get brunch with your kids or just having dinner at Applebee's can be incredibly hard and absurd when you're at a certain level of fame. Exactly. Well, she has like alien level fame, like right, like Oprah fame. There's fame, then there's like alien level like the superstars Mm -hmm. so yeah so it is hard for her to just do a normal thing like go to applebee's and have dinner with her family without being bothered so she she feels like she feels lonely Mm. and a little disillusioned like not knowing that this is what it would be like you know yeah i really i 
I love that. And that loneliness, I mean, in that episode, it's episode seven, where you sort of have a, a breakdown at Applebee's, and you're so fantastic. I mean, in, in season uh, two, um, you sort of, you know, at the end of the season ends with Pat, you know, in the hospital because she's so overexerted and she's worked so hard. And then yeah. we get to season three, and in episode seven, you know, you also have a breakdown because everyone around you is lying to you and <laughs> making yeah. it seem like you're at this, you know, normal restaurant when really it's a big, elaborate smoke and mirrors operation. Can you talk to me a little bit about filming that and having to sort of pretend that you don't know what's happening, but you also know what's happening because you're acting, you have the whole script. Can you like, can you walk me through what that episode was like? So I always wanted to be in a horror movie. (laughs) I told Chris (laughs) Kelly and he was like, this is it, baby. (laughs) Um, So it felt like a very, it was, it felt crazy to shoot too, because in all honesty, there's all these extras and I have to perform with them and they got a kick out of it. Believe me, because I liked, I'm a very spontaneous performer and I like to play around with the other performers and really use the room and improvise a little bit within the parameters of the script, of course. Totally. But um, it felt surreal. It felt like we were in an Applebee's because they they recreated the set so perfectly Wow, that's was, so cool. It was crazy. And so shooting it, you know how you say it was like meta, like this on top of this on top of this. That's what it felt like shooting it because it was so strange being in this Applebee's. It's a sound stage that we were in, but it yeah. felt like we were in an actual Applebee's. So yeah, I felt the way the character felt, but it was just really fun to shoot and very technical because you have to do it all in like pieces and uh but it was really fun i just love the way they write and it's so like it's crazy and scary and then it's emotional and she's like heartbroken and it's just it's just it's just the most challenging as an actor to to play you know Totally. Yeah. And you also got to date Simu Liu. Not terrible. <laughs> I know. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I got to say, one of my favorite things about your the other two performances, but also, and I love that for you, which I loved, you with Jackie, Thank is you. that yeah, both of these shows have sort of an absurdist quality. They're sort of hyper, you know, uh, realistic. And yet you find a way to absolutely hit all the comedic moments, of course, but you find a way of really grounding these characters in the reality of their situations, even if that situation is as absurd as I am at dinner with my family, but they've created a whole soundstage and, exactly. and I'm piecing it together. So yeah. as an actor, like how how cognizant of you about sort of balancing the humor and the absurdity of these situations, but also like grounding it in like a really real and relatable place? I really think that the comedy plays better when it's emotionally truthful. It's it's funnier. It lands more because it feels genuine. So I treat it just like a very serious, dramatic scene, like an actress, as if I was doing Shakespeare. You know, I really yeah. do. But then I also... I've been in show business for a long time and I love when there's an excellent joke written that I make sure I hit that joke with um, comic timing, you know, like, Mm -hmm. because I appreciate the writing so much. So I know when there's a joke, like if there's a crazy joke, like I will hit that joke and make sure you can hear that joke Mm. in a very technical way. Does, does that make sense? Oh, it makes, it makes a ton of sense. And (laughs) it feels like, no, but it feels like that is such a, like you have to be operating on both sides of your brain because you have to be in the yeah. moment and being mm-hmm. grounded, but you also have to be prepared for like, 
I better not mess up this punchline when it comes. Exactly, exactly. Conan O'Brien said a great thing once. He said that all, you know, comedy is like music, that there's a rhythm to it, how it builds Mm -hmm. and then releases. And he said that most comedians are also musical. And I think that's really true. Wow. Wow. Would you consider yourself musical? I mean... Yes, absolutely. I love music and I and when I when I think of the way a monologue works, whether it was the end of season two of like da 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 or this, not to give anything away, but I won't of like pleading you know, the jokes I think of it like uh, like an orchestra, you know what yeah. I mean? Like conducting like the way it comes out. I'm thinking of it um with a with a beat. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Kind of like that. Yeah. No, it really does. And you can feel it as an, as an audience member watching it. And I do mm-hmm. think part of that musicality and part of what makes the ensembles that you've been a part of from the other two to I Love That For You to The White Lotus season one, which I'm definitely going to circle back to, is yeah. it feels like an ensemble of everyone sort of playing their own instruments, but it, they all work together to create this symphony of either comedy or drama when it needs to be. Exactly. But make no mistake, it's just that Chris Kelly and Sarah Schneider, oh boy, do I feel lucky, Chris, you don't know. (laughs) They're such good writers and they really know how to write specifically for people. And not everybody knows how to do that. They really know how Mm -hmm. to adjust to each person and what their strengths are and kind of the rhythm of how they talk. They can really find that and they'll use parts of the real person with the character to make it. So it ends up feeling very natural. It fits like a glove the way they write it. And Mm -hmm. that is not always the case. So it's such a pleasure to perform because, um, Chris Kelly and Sarah Schneider are such a such gifted writer, showrunner, creators. They really, they really are. They are. I'm Nomi Fry, and this week on Critics at Large, we're talking about the delights and shortcomings of the new movie Challengers. It starts Zendaya at the center of a tennis triangle and a very steamy love triangle. Who are her loyalties to? Will she be tempted by the other one? How do these guys reckon their professional playing ambition with their romantic and sexual feelings about this mysterious woman? And such we have it. We have a conflict between three people in a game meant for two. Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. New episodes drop every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. I would love to know because there was a bit of a gap between season two and season three because of the pandemic and filming and whatnot. Mm -hmm. I mean, and you were obviously busy in that time frame and probably stepped away from the character. What was it like stepping back into the role after sort of a few months, you know, over a year away? Mm -hmm. Did it fit like an old glove? Did you have to like find her again? Did you discover new things about Pat? Yeah, I think it fit like an old glove. But you know what was so interesting, Chris, is that... Chris Kelly said, you know, Pat does speak differently. She's come into her power. Mm -hmm. She's gotten more sophisticated about show business and savvy. Um, So she's changed, you know. She has a new romance. Yeah. Um, So she speaks differently. So that part was, you hear her saying different things. If you you know what I'm talking about. Totally, yeah. When she's texting and it's like, whoa, Pat. (laughs) You know what I mean? So that felt a little bit different. I had to get that right. But they're just so good. If, if, say, I don't get it right, they will really guide me to, to to getting it right. 
It feels like a lot of things that are billed as comedy, while there are funny moments, there aren't actually jokes written into the script and people just perform really well or they're just naturally kind of funny or charismatic. Whereas the other two, which is, I think, important in light of the writer's strike, the jokes are stacked. It's like stacked with jokes. Um, Do you feel that in terms of scripts that you see or scripts that you get sent, that there's a difference? Yes. Well, I just... <laughs> Again, Chris Kelly, Sarah Schneider, I they are just so talented. It's like putting together a puzzle the way everything's set up and paid off and all the different characters and the distinct voices. You know, yeah. I think sometimes what you'll get is people that can write, you know, funny stuff, but it, they won't really know how to write characters, specific characters. And um they're so good that they'll write jokes specifically for those characters. Sometimes people will just write general stuff that anyone could say. They yes, kind of and- all merges together. It's like, oh, that character could say it or that or that. But these jokes are for like jokes that only Pat would say or that yes. Carrie would say. You know what I mean? That is very good writing. You know? Yes. No, and that's it totally is a cut above. And I think it's, you know, with you know, everything that's going on with writers right now, it's like it has to be mentioned that it's it's really it's it, I don't think AI could write in a, the other two script, you know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Isn't that crazy thinking about AI writing a script? Oh my god. It's it's very scary and it is very disconcerting. And I, I think this is a perfect show that encapsulates the importance of having human voices and and talented humans collaborating mm-hmm. to create, you know, a really wonderful comedy and mm-hmm. uh, work of art. Uh, do you watch the shows like well, now that, you know, you've been on TV for so long, like, do you watch the shows that you're in? Like, do- Not, That's so funny, Chris. I have never seen the end of season two. Like, I, I think I only saw the first five episodes because I don't I don't love to watch myself because I don't like thinking about what I look like when I perform. Yeah. I don't ever want to be self-conscious and I don't want to be worried if I look a little older. I don't want to be thinking about that. I want to mm-hmm. feel free. So, but I actually do want to go back and watch the end of season two before I start watching season three. So maybe I will go and watch it. Yeah. But, um, I'm like, I, I sometimes just don't watch at all. Yeah. Isn't that weird? That, yeah. I mean, I totally understand that. And, but I will say you're, you're in for a treat cause you do some great work. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, yeah, maybe I'll see it. Um, but it was really fun wearing the old age makeup. It was so fun because Louis from Saturday Night Live came and did my makeup with his team. And it was so fun, like walking around Brooklyn when we were shooting with that old age makeup. I went and bought a sandwich and the guy was like, really like ignored me. And I'm used to being treated, getting recognized. You know, I was like, oh, this is interesting. And then I called my niece. I FaceTimed my niece and she was in hysterics because I have, I look completely different. Completely. Yeah, so I was like, oh, I wish I I should like meet someone for lunch and just surprise them, you know? Like there were just so many tricks I could play on people. And there was one one morning where I saw Ken Marino, but I forgot I had the old lady prosthetic stuff on. And so I waved to Ken to say good morning and he just kind of ignored me. And I was like, that's weird, Ken, maybe he's distracted. And then I was following behind him and I like waved again and he kind of looked and was like rude and just kind of ignored me and walked ahead of me. Then Ken goes into the set and then I come into the set. He's like, there's that woman again. Like, who is this lady? And then he realized it was me <laughs> and we were in hysterics. Oh, my. 
Oh my God, that is the power. Yeah. That is the power of good of good mm -hmm. makeup. That is the power mm -hmm. of craftsmanship. Mm -hmm. um, I love that you just brought up SNL because you know you recently uh, went back to your old stomping grounds and hosted yes. a wonderful episode. Thank you you. got to tell me what was that like to sort of you know come back to the place where it all began in a way. It was, uh, it was everything I would have ever dreamed of. It was just in so great being back with Lorne Michaels. It was just so great working with him and like having him give me advice because there's just, he's a legend and it just felt so fun. Steve Higgins and all these, this amazing new cast and writers. I have to tell you, Chris, I was so nervous though. No. But yes, because I was like, because I was like, oh my god, are the like are fans expecting me to do all my old characters? But then I just wanted to have fun with the cast and do what they wrote, so I started to get really nervous. And then I, yeah, so I was nervous, like yeah. more nervous than I've ever been. Um, but wow. it was, I had the best time. And you know what? As soon as I finished, I felt like, God, I could go back and do it again. It's like, it's like a muscle that you haven't worked out for a while. And yeah. I forget how hard it is because it's live performance and you have to write and get your own stuff on. But um, once I did it, I was like, oh God, I miss it. I, I really miss doing the show. I could, I could just go back and do Saturday Night Live in all honesty. I mean, we would love that. I mean, that's I, so... <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. It made me hungry to do more, you know? Mm. Live mm -hmm. before, would, would you, like, live stage performance even? Like, would you, you know, well, a play? Well, I would love to go back and do something else. It's like a little bit of pressure when you're the host because I get like, oh, I want to please everybody and give them the show they want. But, you know, you, you have, you're just going to do what's written and stuff. And I worked oh. on a few things on my own that I brought myself. But for the most part, I just wanted to work with the cast and the writers. And, yeah. Um, but I was going to say... But yes, I would love to go back. And this new cast is so fantastic. And um, I'm so glad I got to do it before the writer's strike. I know. That's really crazy. I mean, the timing really is incredible because right now, they're, you know, while we're recording this, we should say there are no SNL episodes that are happening I know, because, of the, because of the writer's strike. Yeah. And then, Chris, also what was so special was my husband and kids came and my niece and nephew, but having my two children there, Stella and Nolan, they came when they were really little, but they'd yeah. never really seen it. Like, as now they're older, my son's in high school, my daughter's a freshman in college. Uh. They got to see you know, the place where I got famous, most well-known, and see how it all works. So it's kind of like they got to see me the way the public sees me maybe for the first time or yeah. something. It was just, that was the most special part of it. Oh, that's really fantastic. That, and I guess I do want to know because so many people love to, you know, are nostalgic for the past in comedy. And it's like, yeah. I remember growing up in like, you know, my prime time, you know, SNL was, you know, like you leading into then Maya Rudolph and Tina Fey and oh, Amy and, and whatnot. And then Kristen yeah. Wiig. And, and it feels like comedy is sort of always changing with different eras. And yeah. you sort of are a testament. To, I mean, you've been funny since day one and you're still making current comedy with this sort of new generation. Do you feel that comedy has changed drastically since, you know, your early SNL days or... That's so interesting. Well, yes, probably. I think there are stuff, there are stories that maybe I used to be able to tell on talk shows that you just can't, it's a different time now. Totally. So I think, um, yes, it probably has changed. Yes, absolutely. I think, yes. Has your approach to comedy changed, do you think, since? No, no, not really. It's just like if I give, like, like I gave a commencement address at NYU for all the 
the whole Tisch School of the Arts I mean, at Radio City. That's your alma mater, right? Yes, that's my alma mater. And, you know, there are certain jokes where I'm like, oh, can we can we tell that? Ah, oh, we better not. You should be a little more careful. It's a different time. Yeah. But for your, the way that you, you know, but you're still approaching, you know, from the first time you did Mary Catherine Gallagher to now, your yeah. approach is still completely, this is still the same. You're still approaching it's the still material. the same, exactly. I, it's still the same. There, Yes, I feel it's still the same. There's, yes, yes, still the same. Still the same. <laughs> I, I love that. I, I, I do want to know, is there anything that you feel you haven't gotten to show of yourself? Is there anything you're still really wanting to do? Do or perform that might be a side that we haven't seen from Molly Shannon yet? Because it- that's so great. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, I feel like I have such great relationships with people who I collaborate with, so I want to keep working with the same people. Mm-hmm. And um, and then yes, I would love to be work with somebody new. I love writer directors, and so I'm just I just feel open. But I, I did tell Chris Kelly that I would like to do a horror movie, <laughs> like, <laughs> that, a really like a real. Scary- yeah, really good. Wouldn't that be great? That would be absolutely the that would be the mm-hmm. wildest thing you could do, and I would be front row. That okay, be, great. Or it could be funny and scary, you but, know. But that's I want to put it out there, Chris. They say that horror and comedy are really sort of similar, right? There's you have to really sort of be in the moment, and there's a thin line, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. So we'll see. But I feel grateful for all the opportunities I've had. I can't believe it. I'm just like, I, I was a girl from Cleveland. I didn't mm. know anybody. And I'm like, I can't believe it. Oh. You know, I, I just, I, I really just had such a great time, you know? Oh, it's such an inspiration. It's yeah, so, showbiz it's, is fun. I mean, it's hard. It's a hustle and stuff, but it's also exhilarating. Yeah. Mm. I mean, that's so... Gosh, that is so that is so great. And I mean, with all the Nepo baby discourse to be like a kid from Cleveland and then boom on Saturday Night Live. That's like, yeah, that's yeah, the dream. Exactly. Yeah. Lauren Michaels is so great because he'll really pick people who he doesn't care what Hollywood thinks. He just does his own thing. He yeah. trusts his own instincts and he he is just one of a kind. And so I'm so grateful to Lauren, you know. Yeah. And everyone. And I, I gotta say, I mean, I've interviewed a bunch of people. You're so lovely and positive and fantastic. Not jaded by Hollywood at all. How did you, how did you do it? Because not everyone I is guess, like this. I guess it's because I did work. I didn't have an easy time. You know, I, I just worked like a regular. I worked in restaurants for a long time. I was a hostess at Cravings. I was a waitress at Melon Roses. I worked in the evenings and the daytimes at Melon Rose's Baking Company. Mm-hmm. I used to temp and I would work for agents as like, I get called in like, go into CAA today or go into ICM or go into this agency. And I would just answer the phones. Wow. And I just did all those kind of jobs. So I was always driving around LA looking for like help, wa- help wanted signs Yeah. and filling out applications and... Um, Going broke and going to the bank and being like, how, how much money do I have in my account? Like standing in line. And, and I would want her to whisper because there was always like negative funds. Yes. I was like, don't say it so loud. Yeah. You know, so I think I just, uh, I always think about working and how hard it is to make a living. And I just, am, I, I really, things did not come easily to catch my first break. So I, I think I really appreciate it, you know? That is so important. And it's, it's yeah. it, you can feel the appreciation and the warmth 
through a computer screen. And what I was going to say too, Chris, and I said this in my book was that I feel like it's not, there isn't like some getting there point where, okay, now I'm here and I'm happy. That's, that's really not true. It's Mm -hmm. about being creative, being artistic, working with people you like, Mm -hmm. even if it's just one or two people and feeling like they see you, you see them. It could just be one person that you click with. And sometimes it is only one. Mm -hmm. But what I want to say is that just having that kind of creative life is such a great thing. Just enjoying it, enjoying like enjoying the pursuit of something is fun. There's so much meaning in that. Mm. So just, so I think it was that I saw a lot of people who had gone to high school with or college moving back home and not really kind of giving up on their dreams. Mm -hmm. And I was proud that I stuck it out and was still pursuing it. And I was like, well, this is a good life. At least I'm, at least I'm doing what I'm going for what I want, following my heart and my passions. And that's very, a good life, you know? That does it for today's episode. We'll be back on Thursday. Find us in the meantime at Vanity Fair, on Twitter and Instagram at VF Awards Insider. And on our own, I'm Katie Rich and David. David Canfield 97. And Chris. Chris Triss. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.